In the first several episodes of the Laurel Mountain Cybersecurity Podcast, we've provided some tangible strategies and laid the groundwork to allow someone to get started in the cybersecurity industry. This includes what topics to study, how to assimilate information with good study habits, and why cybersecurity is a good career path to pursue. In today's podcast, I want to provide my insights on some of the most common misconceptions regarding a career in the cyber field. And I want to provide each of my listeners a realistic representation of how the job works here in the United States. So today's episode is all about myth busting in the cybersecurity space. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the Laurel Mountain Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Anderson, and on this podcast, we provide information technology and cybersecurity training for aspiring professionals. If you're interested in getting started with your cybersecurity career, this podcast is dedicating to providing the most comprehensive strategies for learning cybersecurity in the most efficient way possible. New podcasts are scheduled for each and every Saturday on most major podcast providers. Today's podcast is all about myth busting. And what I mean by myth busting is I want to take five relatively common misconceptions newcomers to the cybersecurity industry may have, and I want to clarify what you can expect in the real world. And today's podcast episode was kind of spurred upon creation by a comment that I received via email from a listener. And the comment was very positive in a lot of ways. So this individual uh, indicated that the information I'm providing is very clear and very concise, and they appreciated the research and time that went behind a lot of these episodes, which is appreciated. But they also felt that my positive demeanor on the industry and the lack of some of the challenges and some of the day-to-day that cyber analysts and cyber engineers face Uh, is not being provided in a clear way. And the response, actually, the quote is too sugary. So I want to take this episode to clarify precisely what you can expect as a cyber engineer and take these five misconceptions or these misnomers and clarify them a little bit from my perspective. So not everything you're going to hear in this episode is sunshine and rainbows. Some of what I'm going to provide you here today is positive for newcomers to the industry and it actually will work for you. And some of the data that I'm gonna provide you today might be a disappointment or might be something that you weren't expecting. So I say that, you know, in just to be clear and transparent, I wanna make sure that everyone gets a real idea of what they're gonna put themselves into. If you're looking to get started in the cyber industry, what you're actually signing up for. So today's episode is about myth busting and I'm gonna get started with the first myth right away. So the first myth that I want to talk about is something that content creators like myself are likely at fault for propagating. And that is that cybersecurity is all about ethical hacking. If you take a peruse on YouTube while you're listening to this, or perhaps once you're finished listening to this, you'll notice that if you type in cybersecurity, a lot of the YouTube videos the algorithm feeds you are all about ethical hacking. They're tutorials about how to crack passwords, There are tutorials about how to code malware. 
Those are the things that people place on YouTube and do really well. And it's really simple why this occurs. Ethical hacking is sexy, it's cool, it excites young people, and for the content creator, it gets clicks, it gets likes, and it drives content creation and subscribers because it's an easy sell. Most of the demographics YouTube provides and from an age perspective show that the bulk of its viewer base is younger people, so 18 to 35 year olds. That's perfect to target you know, young high school kids who are interested in cybersecurity. How can you get and pique their interest? You, you push ethical hacking. And before I even get into this, if this is something that you're truly passionate about and this is the cybersecurity role that you really want, by all means, go learn as much ethical hacking, You know, learn all the attack vectors, learn how to mitigate against them, learn what they are, learn what they're about, etc. I'm not here to quash your hopes and dreams, but I want to give you the most realistic experience that you're going to receive in the real world, at least here in the United States. I can't speak for other places, but in the United States... The odds of someone who's a brand new newcomer to the cybersecurity industry, who's even coming in with a four-year degree or a handful of certifications, is highly unlikely to land a red team job or an ethical hacker job right out of the gate. That's just not realistic. Most red teamers are more senior staff with a vast array of experience to emulate the external hacking community. So places like nation state actors from China and North Korea who are looking to finance either a, a regime or a, a political motivation, Th those folks are, you know, use the most explicit and cutting edge zero days that they can find to break your network and to get into your systems. So for red teamers, their job is to try and emulate those folks. So they need the most senior people with the most experience to do that. So the reality is most entry level cyber roles are things like SOC analysts, identity access management specialists, security analysts that are responsible for a specific application, or even help desk analysts. Those are far more normal and, and expected roles for newcomers into the industry than red team roles. And truth be told, the blue team roles are harder and more difficult than the red team roles in a lot of ways. There's more stress on the blue teams because there's less margin of error in this space. And by and large, most of the cybersecurity skills gap, the, the numbers game, those roles are usually blue team roles that go unfilled. The, the understaffed roles, the shorthanded roles are usually blue team roles. And we'll get into this in a bit, but there's there's some misconceptions even with regards to the shorthandedness and the, the lack of, of bodies in the industry. And we'll get to that here at the end. But in terms of hacking, yes, if you're really gung-ho about becoming an ethical hacker, there is a path to do that but you're competing against a significant amount of people for not a significant amount of roles. And truth be told, there are significant opportunities in the blue team space as opposed to the red team space that you might find interesting and more attainable. So I wanna make sure that you guys are understanding that yes, ethical hacking is a thing. Yes, it exists and there is a, a career path to be had there, but it's ultra competitive. There aren't a ton of roles for red teamers and the barrier to entry is far greater than an entry-level cybersecurity role. So 
So the next myth I'd like to talk about is something that newcomers to the cybersecurity field often feel is a, a truth. And it's something that YouTube content creators and podcasters like myself, unfortunately, unintentionally fuel. And that is newcomers to the industry will go onto YouTube or they'll go into the podcast community and they'll listen to all of these variables and different technology sets that they need to know or feel they need to know. And their brain shuts down and they think, well, I need to know X to get started. Otherwise, I can't get into cybersecurity. And that X can be anything. It could be as simple as, well, I'm not good at math, so I can't program. Or I don't know Linux, so I can't be a cybersecurity engineer. And there's a couple of things that I want to clarify here for folks that might feel that way. To be a technologist in the cybersecurity field, my recommendation to get your foot in the door is to have a good overall foundational knowledge on most major technology platforms used in corporate America today. Now, that sentence in and of itself is a daunting one. That's an intimidating sentence. Most major technology platforms, gosh, that's a, a big ask. And in some ways it is, but when I say a good foundational background knowledge, what I'm saying is you should know what each of those things are and what they might be used for. So for example, what is a router? What is a switch do? What does DHCP mean? What do those letters stand for? What does it do? Those are the things that when I'm looking for a newcomer to the industry who wants to get their foot in the door, who wants to learn, do they have a foundational knowledge of technology that they've invested some time and some effort honing? Or did they just go through college and have a piece of paper and now are trying to get into the, the corporate workforce but haven't learned anything? And that's the big difference. There, are, I've interviewed both. I've interviewed people that are you know, right out of school and are just absolutely mortified in interviews and just can't answer anything. And then you have to question, did they learn anything? And I've been in positions where I've interviewed people in this, you know, similar position where they just finished school and they're very knowledgeable and they're very passionate and they already are building their own home lab and they, they're excited about a certain technology and they know where they want to go. And that's really the difference. So if you're concerned that you don't have a certain skill set or you don't have a certain aptitude for mathematics and you can't do cybersecurity, I would quash that immediately. Uh, to be a good programmer, you have to be a reasonable problem solver and someone who's curious. But programming in and of itself is no, you don't need anything beyond basic arithmetic to, to program. So if you someone has ever told you, you have to be a math genius to work in the programming field or to be a developer, that is simply not true. Even if you want to get into cryptography, which is very math heavy in terms of how it works, the algorithms and the numbers and the actual interfaces of crypto are usually done at the government academia level. So if you're someone who wants to write new crypto algorithms, like, for example, you want to write something that, you know, might be used in quantum crypto, which NIST just published the, the most recent candidates for, but let's say you're interested in something like that, you want to come up with new cryptographic algorithms, that will take some significant math to do because what you're doing has to be not only fast, but it has to be safe. So there's a lot of robust testing that goes into that kind of work. But if your goal is just to be a cybersecurity engineer, or you want to work in technology in some way, very rudimentary math is necessary. You don't have to be a math genius to work in this industry. And I'm going to go even a step further. You don't even have to be a technologist to work in cybersecurity. While most of what I'm teaching here focuses around technology platforms, there are roles in the cyber industry that don't require tech skills. 
Uh, for example, we need finance people in cybersecurity. We need people to help us purchase solutions, provide us return on investment for our solutions, provide us business cases for our products that we want to buy, help us get the most bang for our buck in terms of the things that we purchase and why we purchase them. So if you have a business degree or skills in finance, having a role in cybersecurity could be a very lucrative one for you. And we need people with those skill sets. Another line of work that doesn't have to be super technical is a project manager. A lot of what we do in corporate cybersecurity are projects. They're long-term efforts that take months to years to complete. And those projects require a project manager to keep them on task, keep the people working on those tasks focused and accountable. And project managers aren't necessarily technologists. They're just very good at keeping people organized. And another example I can even give you is presentations. If you are good at something like Microsoft PowerPoint, or you're good at verbal presentations in front of a crowd, or perhaps you're good at a, a business intelligence software, let's say Tableau or Power BI, those kind of presentations are vital in translating a lot of techno jargon that we use in the, the cyber IT world for executives at C-level where they need to just know what the functionality is maybe not necessarily the, the meat and potatoes of how things work. And those presentations sometimes translate the technical vernacular into the layman vernacular. So ultimately, whatever job role that you're considering, know that having a huge, massive amount of robust and deep technical knowledge isn't necessary. Having to be a math genius is not necessary at all. And there are even roles in the cyber world that don't rely on technology. So don't let when you go online and you see some of these videos where it says you need to learn X immediately or you can't get into cybersecurity because it's not an entry level field. Some of those things are, are maybe somewhat true. Cybersecurity requires more fundamental knowledge than just general IT does, because if you are tasked to defend something or to pr protect something, you need to understand how everything works in order to protect that. So I would say if someone comes to you with the argument that cybersecurity is not an entry-level field, I would say, no, it's not necessarily not an entry-level field. You just have to have more fundamental knowledge to be successful at it. And we have to get professionals and you know kids through school with that fundamental knowledge so that we make cybersecurity more introductory friendly. And that's why in a previous iteration, I've said that there are uh, cybersecurity professionals at this point can't just be technologists. They also have to be evangelizers of technology in a way that teaches people. So when, when I get new folks into my staff where, or I'm employed, I make an effort to say to them, look, we're not going to have all the answers when we walk in the door here. And I don't expect people to have those, but you have to be willing to learn. And that is probably the single most important aspect to getting a job in this industry, showing people that you are not only teachable, but you are hungry to learn. If you can show people that and have a fundamental background, you can get work in this industry. So don't let the daunting volume of data intimidate you. We need people. We're short people. It's a buyer's market. You're, you're in the advantage if you're looking for work in this industry and have a reasonable amount of foundational knowledge. Someone will take a chance on you as long as you show that initiative.
So the next myth I'd like to talk about is something that has been glamorized in the film and television industry for many years, and to some degree the social media space in today's era, and that is that the day-to-day -day activities of cybersecurity professionals are dramatic and fast-paced. We've often seen this depicted in film, like with movie Black Hat with Chris Helmsworth, where he is a jailed bank hacker who is led out of prison to assist U.S. officials and Chinese officials determine who hacked a nuclear plant and facilitated its meltdown. Uh, these are the kind of dramatized storylines that work great in the film industry, but while this is cool and entertaining in a lot of ways, the reality is the day-to-day -day activities of cybersecurity professionals are far less dramatic and far less interesting. By and large, we spend most of our days in meetings, particularly in the enterprise space. We spend a lot of time reviewing documentation in those meetings where we have a set of procedures or a set of instructions on how to uh, configure something or how to code something are documented and available for new hires. Uh, we spend some time building solutions or at least discussing how we're going to build solutions where we might have a particular problem and that problem might have a couple of different answers that all make sense. And we discuss the pros and cons of those answers and come up with a viable answer. Uh, in a lot of cases, particularly for cybersecurity roles that are relatively junior, we spend a lot of time resolving tickets where we'll get terrible tickets sent to a ticketing system and those tickets kind of are round robined between the staff and those individuals who are assigned the ticket are responsible for helping the team member resolve whatever challenges they may have with technology. And there are often times where we're navigating challenges that are sent to us by other teams within our organization, or more commonly, a vendor has suffered some sort of vulnerability that uh, there, a vulnerability has been made public and we have to mitigate that vulnerability in a very quick and efficient way. Uh, the most recent example I can give you is the Log4j crisis that occurred around Christmas time this year where a logging functionality within the Java framework most used here in the world was able to be exploited for an easy remote code execution and that just means somebody from far away can hack your system without really having a whole, to do a whole lot of anything and that particular vulnerability had to be mitigated immediately in every major corporation in the country. So things of that nature occur. So you, you do have some dramatic things that happen and in some spaces we have to act quickly. But by and large, most of our time is communicative. We're, we're spending a lot of times in meetings discussing what we're going to do or what our deadlines are or what progress we've made on those deadlines. And we do spend a lot of times building solutions, be it discussing what actual steps we're going to take to build a solution, or we're going to take time to either write some code or debug some code, or perhaps we're going to set up a, a virtual machine that has our application software installed on it. And we're going to provide a valuable service using that software to the business. Doesn't mean that the work that we're doing in any of those circumstances is any less meaningful than the dramatic and fast paced work that you might expect cybersecurity engineers to do. It's just not in and of itself a Hollywood script. And unfortunately, I think what happens in this industry that facilitates some of the burnout is that young people will see all the hacking tutorials on YouTube and they'll see all of these movies and they'll see things like Criminal Minds where they're you know, running scripts and hacking things to get answers. And they expect the cybersecurity industry to somewhat mimic that. And the reality is cybersecurity has long hours. Sometimes the challenges we have to solve are time consuming and you have to spend more than eight hours a day to do it. 
Sometimes you get a role that has redundant processes. This is particularly common in help desks where you might have 25 people call you and half of those 25 people have the exact same problem that require the exact same steps to fix. So you're just doing the same thing over and over again. And that can get boring and redundant. Uh, sometimes the work that has to be done is tedious. Uh, best example I can give you this, and it's something very meaningful, is digging through log files. Uh, oftentimes when we're trying to evaluate if someone has attacked our network, it's not this, just this automatic thing that, you know, alarm bells go off and flashing lights occur. It requires someone to do some due diligence. They have to take a log file. They have to parse through that log file and find the appropriate lines that show an attacker doing something nefarious or something that breaks baselines and figure out what they've uh, done. That at least gives us the notion that, you know, or the proof that there's been some sort of attack on our network. Then we have to see if they've progressed or, or moved forward. These kind of redundant, tedious tasks are what lead to burnout. And a lot of times people might feel shortchanged or sold something that wasn't reality. Uh, but that's what most cybersecurity professionals are doing in the day to day. They're leading teams through meetings, they're reviewing documentation. Uh, that, that is the main stuff that we do. And by and large, the main skills that you need to have in those settings are good communication skills, good listening skills, organization, and then come the tech skills. Once we are building solutions and trying to resolve trouble tickets and navigating challenges. So the communication skills and the ability to coexist with people are equivalent or more important in a lot of ways than your tech skills. So the day-to-day -day job of a cybersecurity professional is often kind of mundane and not super fast paced or dramatic. There are times that it is, but those are fleeting. And I just want people to understand what you're getting into. The work that you're going to do isn't always flashy, but it is, no matter what you're doing, in some manifest meaningful. So the next myth that I want to talk about is something that will likely surprise or potentially shock you if you are new to the cybersecurity industry. And it's likely the most controversial topic that I've brought up to any of my podcasts up to this point. And the myth I'd like to talk about is that cybersecurity is viewed favorably within a given company. Now let's make no mistake about it. All of the Fortune 1000 and a large portion of the small and medium-sized businesses in the United States are doing some form of cybersecurity. They understand why it exists, they know it's important, and, and there are in some cases where companies are investing millions and millions of dollars into cybersecurity to protect their customers and their data. So that is not in question. But the fact that cybersecurity is viewed favorably within corporate America is not. There are times and there are situations where the reality is cybersecurity teams are looked at as a hassle or a pain in the butt. And I want you as someone who is listening to this podcast, who may be considering a cybersecurity career, understand what you're getting into. So I want to cite a few examples where we as cybersecurity professionals are unfortunately looked at as the bad guy. So in terms of vendors, there are two situations where a vendor who is selling a product or has a product within an environment can look at the cybersecurity team as a negative entity. And the first situation that I'd like to use here is when a vendor is trying to sell a new product to a corporation or a company, and they've gone through a handful of steps and they're on the verge of a purchase when somebody in one of the meetings on one of those Zoom calls mentions that 
A cybersecurity team member from the company should have a seat at the table. And when that occurs and the next meeting happens, that cybersecurity professional indicates or uh, notions that the product that they're about to buy needs to be evaluated for compliance, for vulnerabilities, and for compatibility within the environment. And when that occurs, that's going to take three to six weeks for that to happen. And all of a sudden, that vendor who was about to make a sale here in the second quarter now has that sale bumped out into the third quarter. And that can do a couple of things. That can push the commission for the salesman into the next quarter that they were counting on in the second quarter. And it could potentially ruin quotas for the second quarter for that salesman as well. So it can definitely throw a monkey wrench into that vendor's agenda. Another example that's using vendors is let's say a vendor has a software product in a corporate environment. And all of a the sudden there's a new vulnerability discovered or some company has a finding that is issued to them by internal vulnerability management or a compliance requirement comes down on the application and a particular business wants to get compliant in a certain way. Let's say payment card industry data security standard, for example, just as an example here. And that vendor has to meet that compliance guideline and the only way to do it is to implement a third-party solution onto theirs. And in those cases, a lot of times vendors have no interest in doing that, mainly because they don't have the manpower to invest resources in testing application compatibility with another vendor's product. Maybe they don't want to support it because it's not worth it to them. Maybe they're willing to lose this particular client as a customer because it's just not worth the investment for them to keep it. There's a lot of reasons why a vendor may not want to uh, work with a cybersecurity vendor and a third-party solution. So in a lot of cases, vendors will view cybersecurity as a barrier to entry as opposed to something doing some good, or they'll know it's doing some good, but you'll get some discourse within the company because of, of what your job entails and what it means for them. In terms of internal IT teams, most of the time, the reason why cybersecurity is not viewed favorably within those realms is that our roles conflict with the ease and execution of their roles. And I can give you some examples here as well. Let's say that I'm a database administrator and all of a sudden a decree is issued that I have to encrypt all of my data on my databases. Well, that just makes my job significantly more challenging. I'm gonna have to test encryption solutions with my database platforms in some cases, I'm going to have to change how things are unioned and joined. In some cases, I might have to change how they're indexed. It makes my job harder. From a rank and file perspective, let's say I am a team member and I just like going to website X every day at the end of my shift. And now because of some vulnerability found on a similar website or, or the website that I like to, to visit, internal security has determined that the internet policy or the usage policy has to be altered and that website's no longer available to you. So in that case, you're preventing that person from navigating a website that they like to see. In both of those instances, cybersecurity is making those job teams jobs either less enjoyable or more difficult. So there are times when you're viewed as the bad guy in those situations. And in terms of leadership, it's not so much that leaders don't understand cybersecurity is important and they don't challenge it. But by and large, cybersecurity is a non-revenue generating entity, meaning that it costs businesses money and it's not inherently bringing in money back to the business. So showing return on investment on projects can be challenging if you can only cite qualitative evidence for your implementation 
as opposed to quantitative evidence where you can actually assign a dollar amount and say, yes, you're going to spend X dollars, but you're going to prevent losing Y. And in some cases, leaders really want that quantitative data. They want those numbers to present to the chief financial officers of corporations to say, here's what we're spending, here's what we're preventing. And there are times when it's hard to extrapolate that information. So leadership even sometimes has a challenge with cybersecurity because it's expensive and you're not always able to provide meaningful ROI numbers to make it work. So these are the challenges that we have internally with with being viewed favorably. You're not always going to be the guy invited to the Christmas party because sometimes you have to tell people no. And that's just the nature of being a cybersecurity professional. Sometimes you just have to be the guy that says this needs done and if it requires your team to do more work, so be it. It's not always the most favorable position, but it is a requirement sometimes to do our jobs. The final myth that I want to talk about in terms of getting your cybersecurity career started, and this one is something that's just statistically inaccurate. And the myth is that if I choose to work in a small company or a medium-sized business, I won't see cyber attacks, and therefore I won't learn as much as if I work for a large corporation. And in terms of attack vectors and frequency of attacks, these statistics just speak for themselves. As of the recording of this podcast, which is late July of 2022, there is a 50-50 split in the frequency of attacks, be it a large corporation or a small, medium-sized business. The extrapolation here is that it's an equivalent chance. It's a 50-50 split. Now, the demographic and the industry that you're in will likely dictate your odds of being attacked. So Joey's Hardware Shack that has 50 employees that sells, you know, hammers and nails and whatever versus a credit union, you know, the credit union's obviously going to have a more appetite for risk. They're going to have more risk associated with their business because more threat actors are going to see them as a soft target, whereas Joey's Hardware Shack's probably not as appealing a target because there's less financial motivation for an attacker to hone in on that. But it doesn't mean that Joey's Hardware Shack's not going to be a target too. And we've seen a lot of major hacking groups start to target the SMB space because it's softer targets. It's There's less resources to mitigate attacks. And oftentimes there's older, more antiquated tech debt associated with small businesses. So it's easier to break into them. Small and medium-sized businesses are also far less likely to survive a major breach. So if Joey's Hardware Shack gets a ransomware attack that you know it locks down every workstation, all their servers and their databases, and someone wants a Bitcoin you know, to restore that, that data, Joey's Hardware Shack may not have the resources to do that. And there are ransomware strains where there's no choice. If you have you know, no backups, there's no recovering that data. The only option is to either pay the ransom or go without the data. So that puts small and medium-sized businesses in quite the bind. And to alleviate this, a lot of them are turning to what they call MSSPs or managed security service providers. And these are companies that basically stand in as the IT departments for small, medium-sized businesses. And usually they're paid hourly or they're paid a certain amount of money a month. And 
uh, professional, some IT professional that's paid by the the company will, you know, this the managed service provider will come in and do security work for those entities. And that is often a better solution than small, medium-sized businesses hiring a dedicated person. Now, that's not to say they don't. There are, there are mixes of both, but uh, oftentimes that is what medium-sized businesses in particular are doing because it's cheaper than it is to hire their own in-house guys. But let's say in this example, you've been hired by a small or medium-sized company and you're thinking it's not good for your career. Well, I would lay odds to you or if you're just starting, particularly if you're just starting, I would contend that it's far better for you to be at a small company if you're for just starting in your IT career in a small place. And the reason for that is small companies and medium-sized businesses often rely on IT professionals wearing multiple hats to keep them compliant and keep them running. So if you are a cyber professional or you're a, an IT professional in a small, medium-sized business, you're going to see a lot of different pieces of technology. You're going to be seeing email systems. You're going to be seeing databases. You're going to be seeing workstations and operating systems and printers and cell phones and firewalls and access points. And you're going to get a very robust set of skills. Now, are these skills going to be ultra in-depth and they are going? are they going to be extrapolated into large corporations all the time? No. But recall that I said to you before that if your goal to be a cyber professional is to have a good foundational knowledge of technology that can extrapolate to what most corporate America is using today, that is a very hands-on and applicable way to do it. If you're working in a small business and you see a ton of different things every day, that's a great way to get your feet and your, your tech skills solidified to make the jump from a small company to a big corporation. That is the way that I did when I, I worked in both large enterprise entities and I worked in tiny, small companies. And you learn more working for the small company than you do for the large company. The large companies are usually very siloed, meaning you're hired to do one very, very specific role in the technology lane, and that's all you do. So if you're hired to do firewalls, you are configuring firewalls and only firewalls all day, every day. If you're configured to secure email or data loss prevention, then your job is data loss prevention, and that is what you're doing. That is the only thing you're doing. It is very, very rare for anyone in large corporate America to have bleed over. It would require some sort of emergency or a massive shortage where somebody has skills in a different discipline that's working in a, a different line of work and they get you know recruited or borrowed, let's say, to come help them. It's rare. Whereas in small companies or medium-sized businesses, oftentimes you're going to be the guy that does everything. You're the jack of all trades, and sometimes you're the master of some, not necessarily the master of none. You you will have some some good skills and various disciplines, and that will help you make the jump from the small and medium-sized business space over to the large corporate space if you choose to do that. Um, in terms of getting your users back online, if they do suffer an attack in the small, medium-sized business space, it's easier to recover. It's less complicated in almost every instance than a large corporate network. And it's easier to promote user awareness in smaller and medium-sized businesses. And that is a key component to keeping your entities and your businesses safe. If your users know what to expect from phishing emails or from attacks or social engineering attempts, they're going to know the, the steps to mitigate those or to prevent those. So keeping your, your staff educated is a huge component of keeping your business safe. And it's far easier to do that when your staff is 50 people than it is if it's 2,500 people. 
So the small and medium-sized business space has a place in your cybersecurity career, particularly if you're just getting started. So the fact that you may not see as many attacks working for a small company shouldn't deter you from maybe considering those offers when you're just getting in the industry. So those are the five cybersecurity myths that I wanted to talk about today. Most of them revolve around those of you that are just getting started in the industry. So I wanted to take some time and let you in on some of the things you can expect within the industry that might not be at face value to you, as well as some of the things that are maybe a little glamorized or overdramatized by the creator community. As always, I thank you for your time and I will see you next week. Until then, goodbye.